On today's morning show, we're going to be talking about something that is so easy to take for granted, the interstate highway system that crisscrosses our country. My guest is Earl Swift, a best-selling author who has written a book called The Big Roads, the untold story of the engineers, visionaries, and trailblazers who created the American superhighways, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Um, one of the things that most intrigues me about your particular perspective is not only that you're taking the time to write about something that, as I said, is so easy for us to kind of take for granted and not carefully ponder and appreciate, but that you have um, fairly mixed feelings about, for instance, the interstate highway system and uh, what kind of experience they, they give the typical driver. And I think that's probably a, a mixed opinion that that a lot of people share if they take the time to, to really think about it. Tell our listeners a little more about what you like and don't like about the interstates that uh, so many of us use so much of the time. Well, well, Greg, I'd be surprised if the guys who actually built the system didn't have those same mixed feelings because, they, I mean, the, the interstates do some things incredibly well. They take us where we want to go really quickly with a great deal of, of with, with no fuss to speak of, and and with remarkable safety, and uh, you know they, uh, it's an almost effortless experience to drive them. But the problem that one encounters with them is that that it's a it's a pretty sterile way to go. Uh, there's not much in the way of serendipity by design, but still, and you know the uh, they almost amount to a 51st state because any point on the system has more in common with other points on the system than it does with the countryside just beyond the shoulder. Hmm. Um, if you will permit me, uh, I recently interviewed a, another author about a, a, a very, very different book, a, a book in which he talked about uh, traveling via bicycle over a, a long, long stretch of time. I mean, through tens of thousands of miles, actually, through Siberia and through Australia and <laughs> just uh, an, an amazing uh, journey. But one of the things that uh, one image he, he utilizes at one point is uh, because somebody would look at that and say, oh, you've seen so much of the world. And one of the things he realized from his unique perspective being, you know, the person with the butt on that seat of the bicycle is that he was actually just seeing a tiny little ribbon of the world. I mean, really all he saw was what he could physically see from his bike as he rode down these highways. And there was, I mean, he was, he ended up being acutely aware of all that he did not see. But I, I remember that striking image, and uh, it is, of course, applicable to what you are talking about here, too, that, that one could travel from one end of the continental United States to the other, on the interstates, and in a sense, all you are experiencing is this tiny, slender, little ribbon of our country and missing so much of the rest of it. Well, what you're describing is almost like an MRI, you know, a slice um, that the, the bicyclist experienced. But on the interstates, it's different because you really don't experience the country at all. There are a few places where it's routed in such a way that you really get a feeling for where you are. But in general, the road itself is on a very wide corridor, and um, you're moving at 70 miles an hour. And the details of the country around you to either side are a blur. You're also keeping an eye out for trucks. I mean, you're, you're engaged in the process of driving. And um, 
because it's limited access, because you can't stop on the road, because you you know there there is no uh, opportunity to interact with anything on the roadside, you really don't experience even a ribbon. You experience the interstate, and that interstate is you know wherever it is, very much like the interstate you left behind at home, and you know that is that's the downside. If you if you travel the old blue highways, the the U.S. highway system that preceded the interstates, built back in the 20s and 30s and 40s, um, it's a much more interactive experience. Hmm. You you have surprises at the roadside and in the road itself. Some not so great, but surprises nonetheless that make the experience a little bit more interesting. <laughs> if I may read just a moment from your introduction that I think speaks to this so well. Pennsylvania Dutch barnyards, misty Allegheny hollows, the endless green of corn on the rise, all that came back to me with sharp-edged clarity. You're talking about looking back on this trip you took. But the thousands of miles we'd made on the interstates were a blur of far vaguer impressions. I could not call to mind any specific image of New Mexico or of West Texas or of the steamy Mississippi bottomlands. Had we really driven through Little Rock and Nashville? We had, we must have. But I couldn't say much about either. The minivan's windshield became a proscenium through which we watched the countryside pass without actually experiencing it. We were in it, but not of it. Then you go on to say, mind you, that's not a complaint. I knew what we'd get when I turned up the ramp and the interstates delivered. They carried us without incident, without drama. They offered up food and lodging with minimal fuss. They carved the shortest path all the way home. And we made very good time. So, I mean, there it is in a nutshell, the yeah, two sides key, of this coin. That last sentence being probably the most important to most people. Because on the, on the interstates, you measure success by, by your rate of, of speed, by your, you know, the progress you make. Hmm. And, um, you know, you may, not ex- you may not measure it in quite the same way driving uh, one of the older roads. But, and, and again, that's not a complaint. You know, I mean, there are times when the interstates, you know, are the only practical way to go. And they, and you know, they do so much. They have touched virtually every aspect of our lives, which, you know, I'm sure we'll get into hmm. you know, beyond just the, the driving experience. I'm just realizing that uh, my wife and I experienced something quite uh, apropos to our conversation we recently had to journey uh, to the north end of the state to a, a city called Eau Claire for a family wedding. And we we got a, a phone call from someone else heading up earlier saying, oh, the interstates around Milwaukee are an absolute mess. Um, you'd be much better off just going uh, sort of cr- across country and then meet up the interstate maybe uh, around Oconomowoc and uh, you'll be much better off. And so that's what we did. And my wife and I were riding with her her father, who has the nickname of Backroads Bob, I mean, he's always preferred that kind of travel, and and he more vividly remembers the days when there was no such thing as interstates. And and actually, we had the most wonderful time, and there is no question, but that the best part of that long trip was that Backroads portion of, of the journey, which we would not have taken were it not for this big... Uh, traffic hang-up uh, in Milwaukee on, on the esteemed interstate system. And uh, it's probably the kind of thing that more of us should should choose. Well, I mean, there, if you're looking for a flavor, you know, the flavor of the place that you happen to be at, sure, 
I mean, you have a much greater chance of being killed. Uh, I mean, that that's uh, pretty irrefutable. That the interstates are many times safer than than even the best constructed of the old uh, the older roads. So I mean, there's there's a trade-off. The view is really pretty. <laughs> We're speaking with Earl Swift. We're talking about his book, The Big Roads. So before we start tracing the history of how the interstates came into being, maybe you could just say a word about. Uh, what, if anything, in particular prompted you to want to examine our our road system in this kind of detail? Uh, I mean, at what point did it occur to you that this was an important story that, uh, as far as the general public is concerned, has gone largely untold? Well, I... I I am not a uh, an engineering geek by any means, uh, and I mean that as no uh, slap at engineers. But I, I am not into engineering things, generally speaking. I'm uh, I had never uh, particularly been fascinated by by roads, although I've always been a, a pretty enthusiastic driver. But I was watching the the national news one morning and watching the weather report, and it struck me suddenly that. The map of the United States in front of which the weatherman was standing had no longer showed any features of terrain. There were, there were no rivers, no mountains. None of that was depicted on this map. The map had been reduced to state boundaries and interstate highways. Those were the two elements that defined the United States on this, on this national broadcast. And I realized, much to my surprise as I watched, that that was pretty much the way I imagine the United States, that I had come to see the country as a grid and that these blue lines, these interstate highways were, were had become more important than the than the regular obstacles that confounded travelers in the country for centuries. And um, once once I had that moment of, of uh, you know, once I had that eureka moment watching TV, I seemed uh, uh, to become increasingly sensitive to uh, to the effects of the highways wherever I turned. Uh, when I went to the grocery store, it occurred to me one day that the fresh asparagus that I saw in the produce section was there, and this was, you know, this was in the, in the, uh, the late summer, was there because the interstates, it had been trucked in from some other part of the country at which asparagus grew at that time of the year. And, uh, you know, that, that sort of... Um, Epiphany was repeated again and again until I, I realized, you know, uh, there's very little about my typical day that isn't touched in some way by these things. There's, mm. there's probably a story here. Well, and it, it, it underscores how appropriate it is, in a sense, for that meteorologist's map to have roads on it versus anything else. And if, if you want a picture of what America is now and what our life is, uh, that depicts it as much as anything does because it's it's so central to what we experience i I think you're absolutely right and i think that if you were to ask most americans who live in big cities to draw a map of the city in which they live they will start with the lines of the interstate system you know there are a few exceptions maybe someone in st louis would start with the mississippi maybe but generally speaking i think people people see um see maps as, as a series of lines that, you know, that the, the, um, the routes, the principal routes on which they travel are central to, uh, to the way they define space and time and visualize, uh, you know, the, the, the contours of the place they live. Hmm. 
And by contrast, uh, you point out quite rightly that um, most of the earliest maps of North America and even the earliest maps of the United States of America don't have a single road on them at all. Uh, I suppose in part because there were very few roads at all, um, and 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 those that did exist were of such poor quality they scarcely warranted being on a map. So true. I mean, there you, there were a handful of long distance roads in the country uh, in in its colonial days, and you would not recognize them as roads, generally speaking. If you picture the tractor ruts at the edge of a cornfield. Uh, that kind of gives you an idea of what a highway back in the in the 18th century looked like. You and quote an old saying uh, that uh, the routes out of most any town in America were wholly unclassable, almost impassable, scarcely jackassable. Absolutely. That, yeah, that was that was the uh, the turn of the century expression for. Uh, and of course, that's the turn of the 20th century. The roads had not uh, not improved a heck of a lot hmm. until the automobile came along. So in this chapter called Out of the Mud, you tell us about the really important work of someone by the name of Carl Fisher, who made a really important difference when it comes to workable, safe roads beginning to be developed in our country. Tell our listeners who Carl Fisher was and uh, what he did in, in, when it came to this cause. Well, Carl Fisher is one of those guys who ought to be a household name and somehow isn't. He was a, a wild man from Indianapolis who completely tireless and uh, with a very short attention span, I think, who put his hands in a variety of different uh, businesses and made important contributions in each. He was one of the first auto racers in America. He opened one of the first auto dealerships in America. He created the first practical automotive headlight, which made motoring an around-the-clock enterprise. It wasn't until he did that in 1904. He uh, founded the city of Miami Beach. He founded the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And in terms of roads, his, his big contribution was that in 1912, he proposed to a group of buddies who ran automotive companies that they built the country's first coast-to-coast motor road. That was the Lincoln Highway, which ran from New York to San Francisco. And uh, it was, in fact, built. And Fisher's Road inspired imitators who put together their own privately subs- you know, private subscription roads, uh, auto trails, they were called. And by the early 20s, there were 250 of them that crisscrossed the country, and they really were the first primitive interstate road network. They were mm. dirt, they were narrow, they, you know, they, they were mud wallows much of the year, but they were on the map. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that is so fascinating about your, your discussion of Mr. Fisher is that uh, as you talk about him, you also give us a, a very, very interesting look at what it was like to be the first autoists, A-U-T-O-I-S-T-S, the first people who owned and drived automobiles. Um, in, in those days when not only the vehicles themselves were incredibly primitive, but so were the roads on which they drove. Um, Remind our, well, not remind our listeners, most of us have, uh, we're no, nowhere, uh, not by any means around to, to see any of this. So, so tell our listeners just what 
these early and short trips in in automobiles were like? Well, a day trip, um, a a very short distance day trip, say we're going to drive 10 miles, might take all day, uh, mostly because the roads were such that you did as much digging as driving. Uh, We're talking mud after a rain that would swallow a car up past its axles. And a lot of people carried big planks of wood in the back of their cars just so they would have a way to, to extricate themselves from these these mud holes. And, and it was just, I mean, that was just part of what you, you came to expect if you were an autoist. The other big thing was you went through a lot of tires. I mean, tires were fabric at the time. They, there was no such thing as a, a, a belt to speak of in, in any of them. And uh, you blew through a tire every few miles. And it just became uh, part of the part of the experience that you knew on a day trip at some point you were going to be out of the car and under it and taking that wheel off and replacing a tire so people tended to carry a lot of tires with them uh it uh you know you were driving a a vehicle that was was um top heavy that was open to the elements completely none of the cars were closed in the early days uh that had really bad brakes uh, and that uh, that was difficult to control. I mean, we're not talking rack and pinion steering. Uh, it was a uh, clattering, backfiring, dangerous contraption. And the early autoists were seen by people as uh, half dashing and, and brave and half crazy, I think. <laughs> and, of course, there were people like Carl Fisher who, uh, who were rather courageous uh, in sort of shoving the the, the automobile forward um, in 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 uh, in prominence, and um, the other thing you do, I think, so well in this portion of the book is you help us understand why, despite all of the inconvenience, why this new contraption had such a hold on so much of the American public, and so much of it came down to the matter of freedom, something which we don't think about, but freedom. Uh, from having to follow the the way of the railroad tracks, essentially. You bet. I mean, I think that's been part of our our cultural DNA from day one. And and one of the things that that contributed to auto sales, whether you were in the city or whether you were far out in the sticks of central Iowa, was here was a, a, a machine that allowed you to go where you wanted to go when you wanted to go, and you were not tied to a, a train schedule, you were not tra- tied to a train route, you could go out exploring. You know, it, it was it was a revelatory experience for a lot of people. And it also freed you, and this is not least, from the horse, because the horse was seen as such a giant pain in the neck by so many people. Uh, ironically, the car was seen as a much cleaner greener kind of travel method uh, compared to the horse when, hmm. uh, when the car came along. Well, and that's, that's really interesting, too. You, uh, when you talk about uh, uh, bef- before cars emerged, that uh, when you looked at a typical street in New York City um, where, where only horses pulled wagons, we're talking about millions of pounds of manure and urine deposited every single day. You tell us, forget the smell and the mess, imagine the flies. I mean, that helps us appreciate how uh, how the early automobile, for all of its shortcomings, uh, I mean, was, in so many respects, uh, felt like a breath of fresh air. 
yeah. I mean, it was it. Uh, I, I use one statistic of my own devising in there, which is that uh, uh, New York City saw 400,000 tons of manure deposited on its streets in a given year back at the turn of the century, and that is sufficient to float three Nimitz-class nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, plus a bunch of destroyers as well. Gulp. (laughs) (laughs) So the automobile, of course, does, does take hold, and with the emergence of the automobile is a need for better roads. And Carl Fisher is one of... The, the people that we can really call a visionary because he seems to understand that we need to begin to build roads not only for the moment but almost more importantly for the nation's future right he you know of course he was he had a vested interest he sold cars and he had come to the conclusion by 1912 that if the roads weren't going to improve his sales had to reach they'd have you know they plateau at the least, and they probably start to fall, that people would simply give up on the technology. And, uh, and so he, he was a, a very strong advocate, uh, not only of building the Lincoln Highway, but he also built a big north-south highway, the Dixie, which connected uh, the industrial Midwest with, uh, with Miami. Tell us about some of the choices that had to be made as the first... Uh, new and improved roads were crafted. Um, what kind of choices are we talking about in terms of, for instance, the material with which they were made, or certain choices made in terms of steep gradation and so on? Um, or, or, or were the first uh, improved roads not, uh, not all that sophisticated? Well, well the, the first improved roads were not all that sophisticated. They, uh, they were beefier versions of roads that had been built for horses and carriages, and they did not last long under spinning rubber tires. Uh, there were, there were a, n- a number of it, uh, different experiments with road surfacing once the car came along, uh, and it became a, a Darwinian process that very, very quickly uh, resulted in, in just a couple of survivors, uh, one of them being concrete, which we think of as, as being older than it is, I think. But the, the fact is that the modern recipe for concrete only dates to 1918. It's, it's a, in, in terms of, of a road-building material, it's, a, it's brand new. Hmm. Um, by way of, of illustration, in 1909, there were nine miles of concrete road in the United States. Wow. Total. And uh, yeah, that's, that, I find that mind-boggling. Hmm. The... Uh, the other alternatives were asphalt, which is really asphaltic concrete. It's uh, it's pitch, or it, or a coal derivative tar, mixed with uh, mixed with an aggregate, usually a gravel or sand or something like that. It's also called flexible concrete, and and those two materials have, of course, survived the years and become the the dominant today. Although back then people also used brick, and they they, they even used wood block in the cities. Hmm. As this first great Lincoln Highway was being developed, you tell us that the Lincoln Highway Association was incorporated uh, in the summer of, of 1913. So that's when this proposal first began to, to, to really take off and, and, um, and, and uh, point to, to, to becoming a, a reality and not just a dream, um, our nation's first great transcontinental highway. There was 
even at that early stage of all this, um, a rather troublesome question. And it's a question worth talking about because it, it pops up in all kinds of, of other issues that have nothing to do with our highways. Um, you write this, the competing approaches to resurrecting federal involvement turned on a question that at first glance seems semantic. Should America have a national system of highways um, or a system of national highways? Um, a, a national system of highways or a system of national highways. Um, I mean, you, you really have to listen carefully to even realize that's two different things. It is. But, but it, it had a whole lot to do with the thorny matter of jurisdiction right. and, should, and, and should authority. Should the federal government own the roads is what it came down to. How was that question sort of wrestled with, especially in the early going? Well, I mean, you know, in, in 1916, uh, the the first law was passed that created a relationship between the feds and the states in building roads. It created a partnership between them. And, uh, and they shared the expense of building roads and, uh, and most of the, the technical thinking behind them as well. Well, roads didn't get built very quickly. World War I came along, and, uh, and that took a lot of attention away from road building, took all the supplies away from it. And so we by 1919 saw a situation where this this three-year-old relationship between the federal government and the states had not produced much i mean you could uh, we're talking a few dozen miles of roads built around the country so there was great agitation on the part of some state highway officials to chuck the model of a partnership altogether and just go to a federal highway commission that would oversee the construction of a federal highway network a, a, a system of national highways that would be owned by the feds, maintained by the feds, and that the states wouldn't have to mess with. Mm. And they saw that as a much cleaner, simpler way to, to go about building. That did not happen. And it's a good thing that it didn't. Uh, but what did happen was that uh, a, a new version of the state-federal partnership was eventually hashed out, and, uh, and that produced uh, probably the greatest road-building boom uh, in history during the 20s and the, in the early 30s. You point out at one point as you're talking about this that that uh, without certain federal oversight, you, you had the potential of, for instance, very fine roads being built within uh, the boundaries of, of the state of Iowa, but that those roads might not necessarily hook up with the improved roads in Wisconsin or Illinois or, or, or Minnesota, that if states retained too much autonomy, uh, you could have a real mess on your hands. And, and I don't know, maybe in the early going, there was a, a mess at, in, in some places. Well, there's more fear of that particular mess than, than, than it actually played out. But, uh, but that, was, that was one of the reasons the, the feds were seen as a, an essential partner in the whole thing, was to bring some central... Uh, organization to the to the to the idea that the, the real debate was: Do you build a, a system that is designed to go long distances? In other words, do you build a a, a highway that is designed to go from um, Chicago to St. Louis, or do you build a series of local highways that, when placed end to end, take you from Chicago to St. Louis? Each, each stretch of which might be built of a different material or look very different or be different in other kinds of ways, I suppose. Well, well each, 
each stretch of which would serve the local population primarily. It wouldn't be a long-distance road as its first priority. It would be a local road. But all these local roads would together create a long-distance road. Right. And I suppose all those local little roads would also take you through every local little community. They sure did. Absolutely. For those of you just joining us, we're talking with Earl Swift, and we're discussing the uh, emergence of highways in America and ultimately our interstate system as we discuss his fascinating book called uh, The Big Roads. We turn next to a visionary figure who exerts a great deal of influence over what would ultimately be an impressive system of highways, his name, Thomas Harris MacDonald. And you describe what made him great in this way. You say he, was, he earned his place in history less as a visionary than as a relentless refiner of the existing. That's, a, that's really interesting. It's, it's also not easy to, to, to summarize, but, I mean, it, it's a kind of uncommon greatness that's actually probably, we, we uncommonly talk about it, but in fact, there's probably a lot of important people in our history who had that very gift. Yeah, I think you're right. And he, you know, he, was, a, um, he was a very odd man. He was essentially humorless and extremely formal. When he was a kid, he required that his, his siblings address him as sir. His wife called him Mr. McDonald. He, uh, he was the chief or Mr. McDonald to all of his friends. I mean, no one, no one called him Tom. And uh, he, uh, he took over. He started out in Iowa as an engineer there and, um, and built a very creditable but unpaved system of highways in Iowa. And gained such a good reputation doing it nationally that he was eventually tapped in 1919 to take over the Federal Bureau of Public Roads, and he remained in that spot for 34 years until Eisenhower was president. Um, he uh, was a very methodical, very careful man, and he firmly believed that a highway had to be economically justified. He saw it as an economic tool, and that if a highway was overbuilt, for its needs, it failed as surely as a highway that was underbuilt for its needs. So it was a, he was probably exactly the kind of guy that taxpayers would want in charge of the national road building program, um, you know, when, when most of the construction was happening. Hmm. Would he be somebody, is it fair to say, who in a sense slowed the process down by being so methodical? No, I think what he did was he developed a set of parameters that could be applied faithfully through, you know, across the system. And he, was, he probably uh, uh, slowed it down at the front end, but it led to a speed up at the, you know, when actual construction began. And he also uh, provoked a years-long series of studies, of research, highway research, into... Uh, when, why, and how people drove. And it got down to really arcane detail. Like he, he would set up measuring devices that would measure on two-lane roads with traffic coming, you know, coming in opposite directions, how far drivers would unconsciously move to the right when they had an oncoming car coming in the other lane, how... Uh, when they passed a car that was in front of them on these two-lane roads, how far behind that car they'd punch the accelerator 
and how long they'd spend in the opposing lane and how you know how far past the the car that was being passed they'd get before they swung back over to the right wow i mean we're talking for years this study went on and it yielded just incredible data that that guided road building from uh, from the late 30s on hmm. it really kind of led to the whole philosophy of the interstates one of the tasks that is part of all of this, particularly in the wake of the important Federal Highway Act of 1921, was the task of choosing the federal aid highways and the, the, the task of connecting roads into some sort of coherent system. What are some of the principles which guided this really tricky process? Well, this was, a, this was an outgrowth of Thomas McDonald's experience in Iowa. He had a very limited budget when he was there, a fraction of what most of the states around Iowa had. And he came to the realization, you know, I can't fix every road. If I do, we'll make no progress at all. So I have to pick just the most important roads and fix those and leave the others. And that's what he did. Uh, and he used he used data, he used scientific data on uh, on use, mostly on traffic use, to decide which of these most important roads he'd fix. Well, once he was on the federal side and they went about trying to, to build the first real American road network, he kind of applied the same, the same idea. Uh, only this time, in addition to traffic use, his people looked at, uh, at the relative wealth of, very, of every county and every state, and wealth not only in personal income, but in manufacturing, in agricultural production, in mines and minerals. And they rated each county, they ranked each county according to how it stacked up against its neighbors. And the most well-off counties got the major roads. And so you, could, you they just shaded the, the counties according to their, their, their net worth, basically. And uh, the darkest shade got the got the road and and that pretty much is how the US the numbered US highway system was routed hmm. now it, it often followed existing highways but which roads they chose to beef up to the new US numbered highway standard was dependent on on those measures of wealth you write the new federal aid roads transformed the country through which they passed what are a couple of the most important ways in which they did that well, for the first time, people could get from point A to point B with relatively little fuss and without having to dig themselves out of a mud wallow that, you know, was was up past their wheel wells. Um, you know, for the first time, uh, road construction was was a, a scientific undertaking. Uh, you know, with with good roadbeds, with concrete bridges, concrete and steel bridges, uh, and people were <laughs> were a bit blown away by by the, the smoothness and lack of hassle in, in, uh, in their travel on these roads. It was you know, transformative, really. They, once they, they got a little taste of what a good road felt like, they wanted more of them. We hear from you how uh, some of these early highways saw the emergence of things called auto, auto cabins. And... Uh, <laughs> 
and motor, motor courts, which of course eventually became motels. It's interesting to see in their infancy uh, some of the things which now, of course, we take for granted on the side of every major highway. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the, the very first uh, ancestor of the motel was really a camp of tents. And uh, you'd pull your Model A or Model T off of the Model T, actually, most of the time, off of the uh, the road, and park next to a tent, and you'd be given a basin of water. There would be a couple of cots inside, and there might be an outhouse. Uh, I guess there usually was an outside as well. If you were at a really good one, there would be a telephone and maybe a little um, screened gazebo where you could eat your meals. That was the uh, that was the beginning, and. Uh, you know, competition prompted some operators of these little tent camps to uh, to build cabins to replace them. And they weren't a whole, whole heck of a lot more sophisticated in, in the beginning, but eventually some of these cabins got flush toilets and uh, and carports. And uh, the next thing you know, you you had uh, you had motels as we know them. Mm-hmm. The first uh, the first attempt at a chain of motels came in 1928. It, it did not take. But um, another, uh, you know, 25 years down the pike, uh, that was another story. <laughs> and, of course, your story ends up, t- uh, your book ends up telling us about Howard Johnson's and Shoney's and Stuckey's and uh, other uh, familiar entities along our highways. Um, as this national system of highways takes shape, there are all kinds of conflicts that arise. And not only uh, what we might expect, like exactly where should these highways go, but even over matters like how should they be numbered and, uh, and exactly what the routes uh, should ultimately be. And one of the most intriguing things about this history is how at some points we have people desperately anxious to have a highway and that at other points in time, it's just the opposite. Can you just say a word about that complex story, especially once we get into the the later phase of all this and the creation of the interstate system? You bet. Well, when the interstates came came along, there was a provision built into the act that created them that required that a public hearing be held. Um, when you know, for, uh, among in the towns near which or through which it passed, and. Uh, Oddly enough, those public hearings at that point, this is in the, in, the, in the mid to late 50s, were designed mostly to hear complaints from towns that had been bypassed because everybody wanted to be on the interstates. The, the, the uh, sense was that a town left off the interstates would wither and die the same way that ghost, you know, the ghost towns you encounter in the Old West uh, withered and died when the railroad passed them by. And so there was great competition to get on the route. Uh, years later, uh, actually less than 10 years later, the opposite of the, the kind of public sense had swung uh, 180 degrees, and uh, most of the protest had uh, just the opposite bent uh, in city after city, especially older long-developed places like uh, Baltimore and Boston and Seattle and San Francisco. Uh, these big highways were, were being routed through neighborhoods uh, and displacing thousands of people. And they were taking down historic churches and schools and parks. And uh, they were exacting a pretty heavy toll and collateral damage. And, uh, and so you saw, you saw kind of the, the public 
sense of, of the value of these highways, at least in some cities, shifted about the same time that a general distrust of government was occurring over the Vietnam War and you know after the Kennedy assassination and the Martin Luther King assassination. Uh, all of those things kind of dovetailed at about the same time. Um, and, and I'm sure that the uh, anger over interstates and the willingness of the public to protest them uh, was fueled in part by, or, or facilitated at least by the by the uh, concurrent uh, protests going on over other staff. Mm. One of the uh, issues, of course, that uh, becomes a, a real thorn in all of this is the issue of terrible traffic congestion. I mean, that is obviously nothing brand new, but uh, I was really surprised in reading your book how serious a problem this was even <laughs> rather many years ago. And, and how, I mean, there's been all kinds of concerted efforts made to, to try to rectify the problem, but it just seems like one of those problems that, uh, that simply has no simple solution. Well, you hear people complain all the time that, about traffic now, but the worst of what we experience today is kid stuff compared to what it was like in the late 30s, where you had, at one point outside of New York, there was a traffic backup that went 84 miles, which is a little bit difficult to get your brain around, you know. Um, but but roads were narrow, uh, cars were big, and there weren't as many of them, but the roads were so tiny that the traffic jams just happened as a matter of course, and they were just titanic in scale. So the, you know, what we uh, we complain about now is, is uh, pretty minor, and, and I'm sure we'd come across as real whiners to a driver of the late 30s. <laughs> One thing that we should, uh, and our, our listeners can, of course, read your book to learn much more about this, but... Uh, because so much officially took shape with the interstates during the administration of Dwight D. Eisenhower, he is often given, in your opinion, a bit more credit than he, he actually deserves. Oh, he, um, no, no question. Uh, I- I- explain where, where uh, the presidential credit for our interstate system uh, truly belongs. Well, first of all, Greg, you know, in the four years it took me to, to research and write this book, I I've run into people who have asked me what I'm doing, and I'll say, I'm working on history of the interstate highway system and how it changed America, and they'll say, oh, Eisenhower, right? And I don't think there's been an exception to that. I think every single person I've mentioned that I'm working on this book to has said that. It's, the system is completely, uh, you know, it, it's, it's tied to his administration in the, in the, in the public consciousness, just like um, the polio vaccine is, or, you know, coonskin caps. And the fact is, uh, he came along years after most of the work on the interstates had been done. Uh, it really dates back to 1938 under FDR. And FDR had kind of a personal role in, in beginning the whole process. He called Thomas McDonald into his office, and he had taken a map of the lower 48, or, or the 48 states at that point, and he had drawn six lines in blue on this map, uh, three going north-south, three going east-west. And he showed it to McDonald's and said, I'd be interested in seeing whether we can build a system of highways that approximates these lines. And uh, I want to see if we can make it pay for itself. Why don't you look into that and get back to me? And so McDonald did. And he and uh, a large supporting cast concluded that they could not make this system pay for itself. But and, and, And that really these six roads that the president had drawn were not sufficient to answer 
the country's automotive needs, but that if Congress could come up with a way to finance the thing, there was a call for a much more extensive network of of high-speed roads, especially in the cities. If you could build a network of freeways, what we now call freeways, in the cities and connect them to long-distance inner-city roads, well, then you'd have something that would be worth pursuing. Hmm. And, uh, and that report to Congress in 1939 uh, was kind of the, the foundation of what later became the interstates, years before we normally think of them as coming along. Hmm. But by 1944, Congress had already authorized the system. They had, the interstates existed legally in 1944. Hmm. Your book also includes... A plethora of fascinating details about, for instance, when the first red, yellow, green traffic light emerged, why interstate signs are green instead of blue or red, and and uh, some of the specifics of how things were uh, were constructed, why certain highways go where they go. And your book also concludes with a, a rather sobering discussion about how desperately we need uh uh, our interstate road system to to be refurbished, and uh, it's going to be something with a gigantic price tag. But it's something that 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 simply uh, has to happen. Uh, just a quick concluding question: uh, In the writing of this book, uh, did you go out of your way to travel portions of the interstate system that you had never seen before? And and if so, uh, can you just uh, say a word about what that experience was like? Sure. Uh, well, I had driven a lot of the interstate before I took up the book, um, but my daughter and I uh, drove 15,000 miles in the in the course of my research, mostly because I had to visit university archives that held the papers of Thomas McDonald and and uh, and others who were principals in the story. And so we wound up uh, crisscrossing the country a couple of times, and uh, it was interesting because our first trip out in the summer of 2006, we. We started out by driving the whole length of the Lincoln Highway from coast to coast. And uh, then we took the Pacific Coast Highway from San Francisco to L.A., took remnants of 66 up through Arizona, the Arizona desert. And then we got on the interstates and we buzzed home. And later when I was looking at my photos from that trip, I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of of photos that I'd taken while we were on the Lincoln and on the other little two-lane roads. But I had a handful that I had taken when we were on the interstates. And that really kind of goes back to the to the absence of serendipity along the way, because uh, I, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it was a metaphor for the experience. We, we had stopped very little on our interstate run, uh, as opposed to stopping every 20 or 30 minutes when we were on the Lincoln Highway. There was always something interesting on the roadside that we'd pull over and take a look at. Hmm. Um, so, you know, it, uh, it, it just hammered home for me uh, how the construction of these highways have altered the experience of, of automotive travel by mm. those who take them, um, for good and bad. And I so appreciate that your book allows us to revisit that that question, which otherwise we we seem so uh, so inattentive to. And uh, the book again is called "The Big Roads: The Untold Story of the Engineers, Visionaries, and Trailblazers Who Created the American Superhighways." Published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt with some very interesting photographs. And the author, Earl Swift. Earl Swift, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your fascinating book. Well, Greg, it's been a real pleasure.